begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. We are here bringing you conservative news, policy, and insights from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Emily Vanderbush. And I'm Tommy Binion. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we have an interesting show lined up uh, following on the heels of the New York terrorist attack last week. Jim Carifano is going to be joining us. Um, he's from our Davis Center, our national security expert, and he's going to be giving us an insight into what happened, what can be done to prevent it. Um, really interesting interview. It is an interesting interview. It's a tough week. Uh, there was the attack in New York. Um, there was uh, the shooting in Texas, which broke all of our hearts over the weekend. Uh, you know, some really um, some nasty stuff in the news last week. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, but New York held their marathon. They uh, did. Yesterday morning, we had an American woman win the marathon for the first time an American woman had done so in 40 years. Uh, so, you know, uh, as we always do, uh, we found a bright side, didn't we? Yeah, uh, New York did a great job of really rallying together to to pull off that that marathon. Always makes you proud to be an American. Um, and as you said, yeah, prayers are with Texas today. A, a horrible shooting happened yesterday. Um, you know, it, it isn't trite to say that you're offering your prayers to these folks because you know, as people of faith, that's probably what they would really appreciate. No, of course not. This is a community devastated. Um, you know, uh, in that. In that church service, the First Baptist Church, there would have been uh, about 50 people. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, almost all of, of that number of 50 was shot or injured. Um, and some of the stories uh, about who was victimized by this attack, the, the pastor's 14-year-old daughter, uh, a family of eight, uh, it's just heartbreaking stuff. Um, uh, and there's no motive. There's no answer why. Uh, there's just the grim news. Uh, really hard to watch, and uh, all we can do uh, is pray for them. Yeah, definitely a week of heavy news going on right now. Switching over to what's going on on the Hill, there's been tax reform in for markup this week, right? Yeah, this is a watershed moment for tax reform. Gosh, have we been talking about tax reform for long enough on Mass Ave? Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's that important. Uh, it's that big of a deal. Um, it's that rare that it happens, and the opportunity is um, is that realistic. Uh, so here's where we are. Um, about a month and a week ago, the Republicans came out with a unified framework, and they said this plan is what the White House and the Senate and the House agree on. That's it's a unique way of doing business. You know, this, this wasn't a legislative text. This was just a plan. Uh, they put that out there. They took feedback, uh, and then they wrote a bill based on that plan. And they put that bill out on Thursday. Uh, and of course, it's it's reform on both sides, the individual and the corporate side. We're cutting corporate rates to twenty percent. Uh, allowing expensing uh, for new equipment purchased, um, some some major changes on the corporate side that are aimed at producing economic growth that will ultimately help you and me. Um, and then on the individual side, there's dramatic sort of simplification going on and, and some tax cuts uh, on top of that. So we take seven tax brackets and reduce it down to four um, and uh, eliminate uh, – most of the personal deductions available uh, and allow for um, a standard deduction that's twice as big as it used to be. Um, really sweeping stuff. Uh, all, you know, for the most part, positive. Uh, there, there are some complaints in there, but for the most part, uh, Republicans are viewing this package as a very good thing. So this week, uh, Monday at noon, the markup's going to start. Uh, and that may go till even Thursday uh, to get this bill marked up in committee. Uh, if it's reported favorably, hopefully it will be. It'll be on the House floor next week. 
Um, the following week is Thanksgiving, and then mm-hmm. we've got uh, then we've got Senate action. So the president has said he would like to make this a Christmas gift to the American people. It's on my Christmas list. It's on yours, Emily. It is the top item, dear Santa. Please give me tax reform. The top item, yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of football left to play, as they say, but um, tax reform is is there. There's this other story that's connected to it. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Well, if it's the one I'm thinking of, one of, one, of, yeah. one of the players in the tax reform debate, Rand Paul. Yes, um, he was attacked in his home over the weekend. Interesting. Yeah, we don't have a lot of details. Yeah. It was his next door neighbor. Um, it was a doctor characterized by some other neighbors as a liberal. Uh, but anyway, it was a sucker punch. He blindsided Senator Paul while the senator was mowing his lawn. Um, and it was a it was a uh, brutal assault. He broke five yeah. ribs, yeah. which is serious. And I'm a little bit surprised at some of the lack of coverage on this. Um I don't know. I guess I would just think that there would be more when it, when a senator was attacked in his own home. But yeah, this is um, you know this is a, a really serious deal. Uh, I hope the senator is okay. We're mm-hmm. we're obviously praying for him. Look, you know, uh, people who run for for office put themselves in a perilous security situation. And now a word from our friends over at SCOTUS One Hundred and One to talk about their podcast. I was on the baseball field this summer. That's right. uh, during the shooting, uh, and now he's the victim of this assault. Um, you know, uh, I, I think we all owe him a pat on the back and, and uh, our gratitude. Uh, but hopefully he's okay. But for now, he, he won't be at work. He can't travel, uh, the news report says. Um, and so it makes the margin in the Senate that much slimmer. Hi, I'm Tiffany Bates. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. If you like listening to Mass Ave, we encourage you to check out our Heritage Foundation podcast called SCOTUS 101. On SCOTUS 101, we break down what's going on at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. We also play trivia. Check out SCOTUS 101 on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts today. Joining us today to talk about the New York terrorist attacks and the Heritage Terror Timeline, we have Jim Carifano. He is the vice president for the Catherine and Shelby Column Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. He is also the E.W. Richardson Fellow. Also of note, he was involved in the Trump transition team and I think can give us some insight into you know what's going on behind the scenes and, and where the administration is going on on this issue of terrorism. Well, Jim Carafano, it's great to have you on Mass Ave, albeit under less than ideal circumstances. We'll be talking about the uh, terrorist attack in New York today uh, and with a heavy heart because it's uh, there are uh, victims, eight victims of, the, of that terrorist attack. Um, it was the 100th terror plot um, in our record keeping. Uh, and unfortunately, it wasn't a disrupted terror plot like many of them have been. Um, I'll kick it to you for sort of some opening thoughts. So here, here's the good news. Um, which is successful Islamist-related terrorist attacks in the United States remain relatively rare. So this is actually a database that Heritage Foundation invented. So after 9-11, a year or two after, somebody asked me, well, aren't they still trying to get us? And I said, yeah. Well, they said, how many times? And well, I said, well, and uh, so we started doing the database. At the time, I think there was 17. I, I remember when we first started this, I was a little nervous because all of these attacks had been thwarted. So I, I called up my 
contact at the FBI. I said, hey, I've got a list of, of terrorist plots that have been foiled since 9-11. Um, can I compare it to your list? And he said, you have a list? <laughs> he said, can, can you send us our list? So um, as far as I know, I think we're the, the only organization, um, either official or unofficial, that uh, maintains this database. And so it's only plots that we know of. Of course, there may have been plots that were thwarted intelligence guys. Uh, but uh, we rely on court records and, and public statements to authenticate that, one, it's an actual terror plot, and two, that it's either directed or related to uh, um, the Islamist uh, insurgency aimed at the United States. And uh, this is the 100th plot. And, and yes, overwhelmingly, they have been thwarted. And they were thwarted exactly by the kind of things that that people ridiculed Bush for after 9-11, if you remember the passage of the Patriot Act, for example. Um, but it's the intelligence authorities in the Patriot Act and in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, um, information sharing, intelligence collection and sharing um, that are completely consistent with the Constitution, which by and large have allowed law enforcement in this country to go out and find folks and stop them before they attack anyone. And this is a, a rare incident where it, it didn't work. So tell us a little bit more about what actually happened in New York City. I know right after it happened, President Trump got on Twitter, uh, spoke about a visa that had allowed this person to come in. Can you give us a little bit of insight on that and you know, explain that a little so bit? So this is called the diversity visa lottery. Ba- basically, it's a lottery. And, mm-hmm. and people anywhere in the world can apply for a visa to come to the United States, get a green card, live here, and eventually become a U.S. citizen. Um it's hard to argue that the visa lottery per se is to blame. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of us who have worked in immigration for many years on these issues have long argued that, that this lottery makes no sense, that the United States coming here shouldn't be a matter of a lottery. We should be bringing people here who we want to be part of the American family and uh, that we should have a system really based on the merits of individuals coming into the United States. So many of us have never have long argued that this system is a mistake. On the other hand, it's it's hard to argue per se that it's a terrorist threat. One of the great things about the the um, having our, our database uh, is tracking how terrorists travel and how they try to come here. And terrorists have tried to come here through every means of available, both legal and illegal. And so if your notion was, well, we have to cut off something to keep the terrorists out, well, then nobody would travel here ever. Um, the alternative, what we want to do is you want to allow people to travel here, and what you want to do is effectively screen them uh, to make sure you're, that uh, that you're that you're screening out people that are potential national security risks. So, of greater concern, actually, than how he got here, is really the many troubling activities that he engaged in while he was here. He was a person who was known to law enforcement authorities, who had been in contact and consorted with people who are suspected of either terrorism or. Or material support to terrorism. That's something where you help people out, either raising money for them or or helping them in some other way. So it was certainly somebody that was on the the government's radar screen. So how he he managed to organize this attack and uh, and do this, uh, that's I think that's a more important question because that's the primary way that we're stopping terrorists is we're going out there and finding them and either stopping them from coming here. We're stopping them from hurting anybody uh, before they do an attack. And we have to understand why, in this case, the system didn't work. 
So I, I think I follow you there, right? So this, this terrorist came in under the diversity visa. We could cut off the diversity visa. We should because it's a stupid program. Um, but in terms of, you know, it, it's, it's, no, it's no more particularly accessible to would-be terrorists than any other uh, avenue uh, of immigration. And I, th- I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, but uh, it, it is still a reminder that um, our immigration system, legal immigration system, um, is an avenue for terrorists. And, you know, the president has focused on extreme vetting, right. which I think is another way of talking about what you were just saying, which is we need to go and find the terrorist and keep them out. Right. And that, that, you know, that that is very akin to what he's talking about with extreme vetting, is it not? Yeah. And as you know, I worked on the presidential transition team, and this is something we looked at, which is the the new problem, right? This guy is actually a reflection of the old problem, which is what we call, for lack of a better term, homegrown terrorism. People that are here already, and then they organize activities, but they're already present in the United States. And if you actually look at the overwhelming number of plots that we've had in recent years— They're from people who are already here. But what we have to be equally concerned about is people who are coming here expressly for the purpose of getting here, organizing attack, and killing us. And and that's a problem, particularly now because ISIS, which was the transnational terrorist group, which essentially established a state in the middle of the Middle East in their their so-called caliphate, that, that has collapsed. And with that collapse, the tens of thousands of foreign fighters that flooded into the caliphate to support that, they have to go somewhere. We know where they're going. They're going to the countries that the president has announced we have to do much more extreme vetting of these countries. Um, so not only do we have to worry about those, those terrorists outflowing from there and coming here, but you have to remember we're, we're now in a new phase of the strategy of groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda. They no longer have physical caliphates on the ground. So they have to have virtual caliphates. They have to show that they can continue to carry the attack against the West. And so they're much more involved, much more concerned, much more seeking operation to intentionally get people to get to the West, whether it's the United States or Western Europe or allies in Asia like Japan and other countries, and and organize attacks there. So it's never more important than we be on the alert then we be on the alert for terrorists traveling here for the express purpose of doing another attack like a 9-11 or even something like this, just an attack in an everyday community on a, in an exceptional way. So, uh, Jim, thinking back to the campaign, um, radical Islamic terrorism uh, was an important issue in this campaign. Uh, it was one that I think there was a big distinction between the two candidates on. With that in mind, how has our fight against radical Islamic terrorism changed under President Trump in ways that uh, weren't present under President Obama? And you think those are good good things? I, you know, I do think there, there have been significant changes. And, um, you know, I wish we had a better word from this. You know, this term political correctness doesn't quite Get it right, but there was this notion under the last administration where the priority was about not appearing insensitive to Muslims or other groups, and that was actually a higher priority than catching the terrorists. You know, nobody's out to defame the religion of Islam or to intimate that billions of Muslims around the world are supporters or condoners of terrorism, but the notion that you're going to actually constrain legitimate 
legal, constitutional, critical national security and law enforcement pools because somebody might be offended. That's just kind of nuts. And I think the thing that this administration has done that's most important is just thrown out that attitude that said, look, these things are legal, they're constitutional, and they're necessary to protect us from people that are trying to kill us. We're not going to sugarcoat what we do. And I think that's appropriate. And I, and I don't think it's actually caused a backlash in the Muslim world. In fact, we've actually seen the opposite. If you actually look at attitudes towards the United States in the Middle East, which is the great source of much of this now, they look to America as an ally that's going to come in and help save them from these terrorist groups, which in many cases, most of the people they're killing in the Middle East are other Muslims. So ironically, for all the, the vitriol and anger about the campaign trail and everything else about Donald Trump, one is our, our measures, I do think, are more effective here at home. And two is, ironically, they're more appreciated around the world because people think we're a better friend and ally to help them stop the people who are trying to kill them. We focus a lot on the immigration side of it, but looking here to more the homeland security side, a lot of people were surprised when this happened in New York. You know, not everyone has followed our terror timeline. So to them, this was, you know, one of the first major attacks that they could remember in, in recent memory. What do you think? Do you think this changes what's going on on the ground to prevent terrorism? And what steps do you think um, local law enforcement could take in that? Well, it's been very consistent with the trends we've seen, not just in the United States, mm-hmm. but globally. One is a terrorist attack in their own backyard. You know, years ago, the major attacks were focused on New York, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., the, the high profile targets. Um Since then, basically, we see that people who are radicalized basically look for targets in the area in which they live. This guy happened to live in New York. Uh, The other thing is, is they're not very sophisticated attacks. Uh, They're not looking for the scale of uh, that we saw in 9-11. And they're attacking with the most ready tools at hand. And uh, so particularly taking vehicles and just running over people. I mean, that's something that we've seen uh, in Western Europe and the United States as well. So that's the nature of the current threat. Um, so, but it gets to a really important point, which uh, I think a lot of people tend to miss is when they talk about terrorism, they often focus on the, the what. Like, uh, mm-hmm. oh, we, now we have to worry about people running us over in trucks or we have to worry about a sniper or we have to worry about a car bomb or a dirty bomb. You know, what stops a terrorist attack uh, and and the mo- the most common way we stop terrorist attack is by looking at all of the stuff that happens before that because mm-hmm. terrorists have to organize they have to talk to people they have to communicate people and you look for those signals and you stop that and it's less about fixating on well you know is it a car bomb or a dirty bomb because in the end of the day we're never going to childproof america we're never going to make ourselves safe from everything everywhere because we wouldn't be america anymore so and and our freedom is, and, and is what gives us our creativity and our vitality and our innovation and allows us to be a great and powerful nation. And you can't childproof 320 million people anyway. You have to go out and find the terrorists, which gets back to the point is, in this case, there were some signals. Why why didn't we pick those up? Because that, in a sense, is our, our first line of defense. You know, the, the point you're making stems directly from, I, I would guess, your study of the 100 
terror plots since 9-11. Um, they're not all the same. They, they, none of them, you know, not all of them could have been prevented by the same uh, security measures. Uh, and the terrorists come from different places with different motivations and, it, and at various times choose different techniques. Uh, but that brings about the point um, that's so critical, which is, uh, you, you know, you spoke about overreacting to one certain type uh, if we did that, we, we would we would continually right. overreact until we uh, until we thought we were no longer a soft target, and then we'd no longer be America. Um, is that the is that the most important insight from the database? Is um, h- how to think about preventing terrorism by not preventing the actual act, but by going and finding the terrorist? I, I think so. It's it's borne out again and again and again, and there is no silver bullet. Uh, domestically, what we know is that good law enforcement. Uh, Good intelligence sharing, uh, community-led policing, intelligence-led policing, these kind of things are, are pretty efficacious. They kind of work. It's not a silver bullet because we also have to worry about terrorists coming from abroad. So we have to screen visa and other kinds of travel. And, and we can't just let terrorist uh, um, havens foster overseas. So we have to go after them. And, and we have to do all these things. But here's, the, the, I think, the biggest lesson and what's most important. Because um, many of these things we were doing before. And if you actually look from 9-11 up through about 2008, uh, we were actually making real progress in the war on terrorism. There, you know, by, by the time you get 2008, Iraq was quiet. Uh, uh, there was not an ISIS. Uh, uh, Al-Qaeda was on the run in many places. And essentially, we, we evolved into a system where we said, well, we're not under pressure anymore, and we kind of took our foot off the gas pedal. And we became more concerned about being politically correct and filtering everything, you know, foreign policy through what, what was good politics for Washington. And in doing that by, in a sense, kind of withdrawing from the Middle East, by not really being serious in Afghanistan, by not really uh, go really – uh, maintaining the pressure in these programs, we we created space for groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda to get back in the game. Now we learned a lesson from that. We and we started going back after him. And this and this administration has has really accomplished a remarkable amount in a short time. We we've, we've wiped out the caliphate in the middle of the Middle East. Um, ISIS is on the run in many places. They're under tremendous places in their in the places in, in, in uh, Tunisia, I'm sorry, in, in Libya, in Yemen, in Somalia. If there's one lesson, it's don't take your foot off the gas pedal, right? It's like you're running a marathon and you're at mile 10. Don't slow down and let the other guys keep up. We're, I think, on the offensive on the global war against these extremist groups. We just need to keep doing what we're doing. And I, fortunately, I do think we have an administration that's committed to that. That's good to hear. Um, I just have one more question for you. This terrorist is still alive. He's in custody. Is he of any intelligence value to us as a lone wolf? And then whether he is or not, what should happen to him? Well, um, of course, we don't know. Uh, But the the great value of of having capturing somebody alive is you can interrogate them. Uh, So uh, he's going to be tried. Uh, We've successfully tried terrorist before. Think back to Jose Padilla, for example, who's actually an American citizen uh, and was tried and convicted of terrorist crimes against the United States and also interrogated to gain some intelligence information. Uh, So he'll process through the system. But uh, that's just one person in one place. 
you know, we've got 320 million people to protect all over the country, as well as Americans and embassies and visitors around the world. So uh, this is just one, you know, small data point in a, in a much uh, a much bigger struggle. But again, I, I do think having somebody that, again, followed these guys through the campaign uh, and the transition team has watched this government. This is a government that actually knows how to fight transnational Islamist terrorism. It really does. And uh, you can be distracted by the rhetoric and the politics and the yelling and screaming and the the claims and everything else. Or you can push all that aside and look at what they're actually doing. And what they're actually doing looks pretty good. And remember, we've been at this for 15, 16 years now. We have a lot of experience with what works and what doesn't work. And, and what these guys are doing is the kind of stuff that actually works. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and conclude the interview there. Thanks so much, Dr. Carafano, for joining us. Hey, Jim. Happy Happy Veterans Day. Oh, thanks. Thank you for your ser- for your military service to our country and the many other ways that you've that you've served us with uh, with your with your brain um, and your military service. Thanks well, a lot. You know, I hope folks will think not just Veterans Day, not just as a day off, or you know, say hi to a veteran. That will go out in their community and find some way to engage with, serve. Or, 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 or just be part of that veteran community and, uh, and find a way to give back a little bit. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And now for the popular Ask the Expert segment, which is our version of the Man on the Street interview, except for it's the policy expert in the hallway at the Heritage Foundation interview. Uh, here with that is Jenny Maltabano. We're here with Walter Lohman. He's director for our Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. It's our oldest research center here at Heritage. Walter, thank you for being with us. I was wondering, could you please preview President Trump's trip to Asia for our listeners? Well, first of all, it's a major trip. It's um, it's the longest trip any president has taken in 16 years. It is um, has the most stops of any president in the last uh, 13 or 14 years. Uh, so it's a major commitment on his part. And I think the most important thing that can come of it is his expression of commitment to our allies in, in Asia, particularly in, in Japan and Korea and the Philippines, and our overall um, commitment to the region. That is our presence there, our diplomatic engagement of the region, our military uh, for deployed forces and the like. So, so it's a major undertaking taking very important for the United States. Walter, thank you so much. And for our listeners, if you want to learn more, Walter and two other senior research fellows here at Heritage put together a wonderful commentary called Asia Trip, A Chance for Trump to Set Things Right. You can find it on our website. It's a great read, a great commentary, and they do a fantastic job. And as always, thank you. And we always appreciate questions from our listeners. Well, thanks for listening in. Hopefully next week we'll have better news to be talking about. Um, Remember to subscribe to Mass Ave on iTunes, uh, and it'll let you know when we have a new episode. Um, Check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave Podcast, and remember to follow the Heritage Foundation to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Mass Ave Podcast, and remember to subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes to keep up with the latest in conservative insight from the steps of Capitol Hill.